Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. It is my aim that in this podcast that we illuminate different areas of psychology and where you might find yourself working or want to work one day for that matter. I also like to introduce you to people behind the professional psychology hat. And so today is a really useful opportunity for us to do just that. We're going to be looking at forensic psychology as a career today, but we're also going to be looking at issues of neurodiversity, specifically ADHD and dyslexia. So I hope you find this a really useful episode. Um, I am joined by a guest um, today to talk us through all of this stuff. Please do come and connect with me on the Aspiring Psychologist Community free Facebook group where we can discuss this episode and more. And if you've got any questions or things you want um, help from the audience uh, to answer, then you're welcome to post in the group as well. So yeah, I hope you find this a useful chat and I'll look forward to catching up with you on the other side. Hi, just want to welcome along Amy Jane Needham to the podcast. Hi, Amy. Hi, yeah. Thank you for joining us. And you are currently a trainee forensic psychologist. That's right, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Lovely. And it's always lovely to introduce new branches of professional qualified psychology routes to our listeners. Um, we've got lots that I want to talk to you about today. Um, but could we have a little bit of an overview of you, you know, how you got there and um, yeah, why forensic would be really useful. Yeah, so for me, forensic psychology, I've always been interested in sort of forensic settings. Um, for me, I just think there's so much good work that can be done. There is a lot of people that win the services that have sustained trauma. They've had lots of difficult life experiences. And I think for me, um, it's, a, it's a field where I feel like I can do the most good. And as well, I just think it's really fascinating. I never have two days that are the same. And I think for me, I kind of need that really sort of chaotic environment where two days are not the same. I think if it's if things were the same day to day, I think I'd become quite bored. So I kind of like that it's that it is different and no two days are the same. But also I am working professional. I can help people as well. Brilliant. And if people are listening and they're like, I don't even know what a forensic psychologist is and what sort of clients 
they'd work with and in which settings. Could you give us a little bit of an overview in that area as well, please? Yeah, so I think... um, Forensic psychology, it's a really wide field. And I think people will just think, oh, actually, you just work in prisons. So that is true. Some forensic psychologists do work in prisons. Um, However, we tend to work with people that present any sort of challenging behaviour or forensic behaviours. But also we can work with people on the other side. So we can work with victims. We can uh, work within the court and the criminal justice system. It is such a wide area. So it isn't just at prisons and hospitals. Um, my preference is I like work, working in secure hospitals or working more sort of like on the healthcare side. Um, but yeah, there, it's such a wide variety. If, if you're interested within the criminal justice system in sort of forensic behaviour, whether it be um, the, the people that um, commit the crimes or kind of are involved with offending or kind of the other side sort of working with victims, um, it's such a huge field. So you kind of can work wherever. Um, also, there's forensic um, positions and kind of work within the community prior to the job that I'm working at now, because I, I currently work in a um, secure forensic hospital. But prior to that, I worked in the community for the NHS. So I worked uh, on the offender personality disorder pathway. So there is a huge variety of <laughs> positions and different places you can work within forensic psychology. There is, and there's also quite an overlap between the relevant experience for clinical counselling and forensic psychology, isn't there? So I know both of my assistant posts actually were forensic um, settings. So I was a an assistant clinical psychologist within forensic populations. So the first mm-hmm. was um, a large psychiatric hospital and the second was a youth prison. Um, but I was very keen to carve out relevant clinical stuff, but within within an offending population. Yeah. Uh, sorry, one second. I, I'm on mouse duty. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, that is true. Um, and I think before there used to be such more of a difference in terms of forensic psychology or if you're kind of looking like old school prison psychology it used to be very separate but I think now there is a lot less overlap between sorry there's a lot more overlap between the professions and so you kind of have forensic psychologists that work in clinical settings like in hospitals and prisons in the community you have clinical psychologists that work within prisons I do think the overlap between the professions is a lot less I think overall we do have an understanding of what assessment is, formulation, treatment and kind of that sort of approach to working with patients. And that doesn't really differ too much, whether it's clinical or forensic or what sort of population that you're working with. Um, I think probably in the forensic aspect, there's a little bit more training around risk. We do as part of our training, we um, or my training anyway, we had lectures specifically around violence risk assessments um, sexual risk assessments and because I think stereotypically or historically that's a bit more of a forensic sort of aspect um, but my supervisors have been both clinical and forensic psychologists working in hospitals so there's not really been that much of a difference. Brilliant thank you for illuminating our listeners <laughs> um, awareness in those areas. Could you tell us a little bit about what your training's like and what is it really demanding? Is it really involved? What does it What does it take from you? Um, I, I find the training quite intense, to be honest. That there is so many different ways to kind of um, qualify in forensic psychology. So I've chose to go down the doctoral route, 
Um, so there is two universities that offer the doctoral route. There is University of Birmingham and the University of Nottingham. And they kind of are based on the BPS route. So um, you do stage one, which is the MSc, and then you have the equivalent of stage two, which is the doctorate aspect. Um, it's kind of encapsulated all in one course. And um, it does have a lot more of the research element and it's kind of the extra sort of research element, which um, is why it's the doctoral route. So some of the other routes are practitioner based routes. So there is um, the BPS route. There is the, the forensic practitioner route at Cardiff um, where they, you'd have to. I'm not I'm going to say I'm, I, I don't know as much about the routes. I think it's like a postgraduate sort of uh, diploma sort of route. Um, and regardless of what route you take, when you qualify as a forensic psychologist, does that mean that you're able to register as a forensic psychologist with the HCPC? Yes. So whichever route you choose to take, you are you can still register with HCPC. Um, some of the routes um, are not chartered. So I don't I don't think the Cardiff route, um, you can apply for chartered with the BPS I, I'm not too sure. There's a, a little bit of variation. And obviously with the doctoral route, um, there is the, doc the doctorate aspect as well. Um, I'm going to say compared to like the other routes, so I have friends that have, have gone down the clinical route, they've gone down the educational route. It, it seems to be a lot more streamlined. So you have the doctorate and that's kind of the way of uh, qualifying, whereas forensic, there seems to be a little bit more sort of variation. Um Personally, I found the doctorate route quite demanding just because I'm, I was working four days a week. Um, some days I was working five because I chose to um, use paid placements. So the doctoral route isn't funded. Um, so I've used a doctoral loan to cover the cost of uh, my course fees. And the training is, is expensive. <laughs> I will add that. <laughs> um, so for me, I wasn't able to do the course. I wasn't able to find funded placements um, so I've used assistant psychologist posts and kind of found my own sort of placements to kind of get me through the course so that had that added level of sort of a little bit of stress because I had to find posts um, but the university was fine with as long as the posts met the sort of criteria so they had to be with a forensic population um, so I couldn't have like a post working say in an eating disorder um, clinic because it didn't have as much relevance in terms of forensic psychology um so yeah I had to find my place which was quite stressful I was working a lot of the time doing research at the weekends um so it is quite intense there isn't sort of a lot of time in terms of to write your reports to kind of do the extra sort of university work required so I I found it quite difficult and um we have a write-up year um which is so the placements are over two years so I've done four six-month placements um, and within that time I've done the practitioner sort of side so I've um uh, written placement reports have evidence competencies within the forensic psychology so they have core roles so like core role one's assessment and formulation core role two's uh, research three is uh, like um educating others within psychological knowledge and four is training so I've had to evidence all of that uh, but then obviously I don't have the time as such to write the reports. <laughs> so all of that has been done so much kind of like in spare time. So I've ended up using the write up year, which I'm still in now to um, still be writing up my thesis. So, uh, yeah, 
I find it quite full on, to be honest. It sounds it, it sounds it. But what it also sounds like is the end is in sight, Amy. Yes. So I, um, we have two uh, theses, thesis, I'm not sure the plural is, but I have two. <laughs> so um, I have finished my um, clinical one, which is kind of our practice portfolio, which is our practical skills. And I was vibed earlier this year. And I've just got amendments to write. And I'm currently in the process of finishing my research. So um, each thesis comprised of six chapters. And I'm just writing like my last sort of chapter. And I have got the discussion, which is chapter six. But in my head, that, that's a small chapter. So it, it's and it's just an overall summary. So I've got one actual full chapter to write. And then it's on to the discussion. Amazing. So, and then you're yeah. able to start thinking about applying for qualified roles uh, well I'm currently in a qualified position so um some some posts will kind of be open to trainees that are either at the end of their training or um within so many months of qualifying um so my last post I was in as well was for a qualified and they will kind of just offer extra sort of support um and I guess because where my route's a little bit different, I have like this sort of um, like interim period. So I've finished all of my core roles. I've kind of evidenced all the stuff that um, I need in terms of my clinical work. But because I'm doing the doctoral route, I I don't get my HCPC registration. I don't fully qualify till I've finished the, the research side of my course as well. Um, so I've kind of finished and had all my clinical work signed off. But whilst I'm kind of, writing up my research I'm qualified but not qualified if that makes sense I'm in like this interim period I'm with you sort of a bit of a middle ground yeah and then does your pay go up once you are fully HCPC registered as well and yeah. um, so a lot of positions either so I work in a private company at the moment um, and what they do is they kind of pay you in terms of your core roles so because I've obviously submitted evidence for the core roles I'm just paid at the top of like a trainee band um, and then obviously once I qualify and I've got my registration and all that sort of stuff, I would move on to a qualified salary. And um, within the NHS, I know some of them will, they will say um, like band six until qualified or they will call it like a preceptorship psychologist role. So it's for those that are kind of near the end of training and looking sort of to be in a post for when they qualify. I'm with you. That's really useful to know. Um, and in terms of timeframes, um, so you probably know or might know that, that clinical psychology, you tend to apply in autumn um, and then hope to get interviews in spring and then it starts in September. Is there any sort of predictable pattern for forensic or is it all just like throwing up things in the air and seeing what happens? <laughs> so I guess it depends what route you want to go down. Um I think within within the prison service, they have um, like national sort of recruiting drives where they recruit so many forensic psychologists and there's a waiting list. I'm not obviously very familiar with that sort of route, but I know that they do have that. And I've seen people post about that um, with the BPS route. I'm, I'm not too sure. I know that they have revamped it a little bit because it used to be. Um, like kind of like how long is a piece of sort of string it would be when you've completed evidence for one core core role you'd move on to the next but they've kind of um 
like added like deadlines and timeframes because that was one of the issues in terms of it was taking people such a long time to train. And I think for me, that was one thing that deterred me from the BPS route was because I feel like I needed that sort of structured sort of timeline of this is when you have to get this done. This is when you have to get that done just to keep me on track. Um, so for the BPS, I'm not actually sure there is information sort of um, on on their route. I think if to look if you look online with the with my route, it's a similar sort of thing in terms of um, I applied, I think, in February sort of time. Um, and then I kind of had the interview and that sort of stuff. And I was offered a place then for September and it was September, obviously, like then it follows like an academic term. Um, so I'd say for mine, it, it is a little bit similar to the clinical. I had, I did my application. I had an interview, um, obviously from the outcome of the interview, then I was offered a position to start in September. Um, I, I think for the other routes, because um, at work we have other trainees as well, and they're on the Cardiff route and they had interviews. I think they do one or two intakes and it's a similar sort of thing. You, um, will apply through the university, you have an interview, and then depending on the outcome, start obviously when their term time starts. Brilliant, thank you. I know when I was working um, in an inpatient hospital, um, I was working with trainee forensic psychologists, and it wasn't a doctoral route at that stage, I don't think, not that they were doing anyway. And they found it really difficult because it seemed like constantly the, the, the goalposts were changing. They might be in the middle of a placement or in the middle of the unit and then they'd suddenly rewrite what they wanted or what the expectations were and they'd have to sort of start again. And it just sounded incredibly frustrating for these trainees. Is that still going on or has it become a bit more uniform? I think uh, I think because my route, I was through the university, um, all the routes kind of have the same sort of thing, but they're all really different. So when I'm hearing that the trainees that were talking about, um, what do they call them? SOPs, and I'm not sure what that is. It's something something of proficiency, and I'm like, I don't understand. What's this? Like, I feel like all the routes have um, their own sort of way of going through it, and um, so I'm Yours not. Yours has not... been uniform and fair and consistent, which is always good to hear. But yeah, yeah, other opinions may be available depending on which route people are doing their um, their forensic. Yeah. I think Great. each does have like a little bit of variation in them, but I do have to say, like, mine was quite. We had a handbook which was kind of laid out. I knew that I had the the four placements. I knew I had to do placement reports. So it was kind of it did feel very structured and laid out, which I think for me, I needed that structure. So that's kind of what drew me towards that sort of, that sort of training route. Brilliant. Thank you. So um, yeah, we connected on LinkedIn and got Mm -hmm. chatting about your love of, your love of rodents really. (laughs) Um, But also um, more recently, you've been sharing your journey about ADHD assessment and treatment as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how you first started thinking about ADHD and what that's been like for you? Yeah. Um, so for me, I, um, I've always kind of known I had ADHD. I um, was stereotypically when you think of um, like a, a boy child with ADHD, I was very disruptive. I was having like meltdowns in supermarkets. I was when you think stereotypically of what ADHD is in a, in a child, 
I was kind of that child. I, I was really disruptive. Um, so I think from kind of like really early on, my mum knew I was a little bit different to my sister. She was like, she's a, <laughs> she's a little bit of a challenge at times. And you doesn't play with rats, I'm guessing. Uh, well, well, actually, it's only when I moved out um, uh, from home, um, I had rodents, but I've always had pets. I've always grew up with pets. So, okay. uh, but you're just pets. very different types of people. Yeah. And I think I, I, and growing up, um, to be honest, I think in terms of the sort of assessment and diagnosis of ADHD, especially within girls and women, has improved a lot from when I was a child. I think my mum my mom spoke about when she took me for an assessment, I think I was around four. Um, so, I mean, I'm 30 now, so 26 years ago. <laughs> um, and she she just said that they um, wasn't kind of sure. I was really disruptive. And so she kind of sought um, support from her friend who was, um, she was a teacher, but she taught children who were kind of, um disruptive and she worked in a pupil referral unit and so I kind of she had a lot of support in terms of like behavioral interventions um, in terms of structure keep myself really busy um so I've kind of grew up sort of knowing that I was a little bit different um so you didn't and, fulfill the diagnosis at four at that stage it's something you came back yeah, to it was it was when I was in secondary school um I so it was kind of like everyone sort of knew, even at school, there was like, Amy has definitely got ADHD. Like she doesn't sit still. She constantly talks. Like I was always sat on my own on the desk because whoever was sat next to me, I would just talk. I'd be really disruptive. Um, so I had kind of, I had an assessment. Um, I think I was around 13 or 14. And that kind of came, uh, they suggested that I had ADHD and then there was something around, do I want to be, do I want to go to a different school? Do I need to be sort of like go to a special school? And my mum's like, no, she is fine. Like, and I think that was kind of the, where it's progressed a little bit. It's, if you have this diagnosis, you have to be educated differently, where she was like, no, she's, she's fine. Um, so I, I, then the school kind of provided some extra support if it was, because I kind of wasn't on like a, a CD sort of borderline, I was achieving kind of really well at school. They didn't know what to do with me, if I'm being honest. It was like, well, she doesn't need a teaching assistant. She um, is just a bit chatty. So they, I don't know what, I had this person, I don't know what I did with them. I just kind of, it was like an hour a week. But um, I had that whilst I think it was in, through GCSEs. Um, but then it was actually my PE teacher was like, Amy, I think you've got dyslexia. And he was like, your written work is good, but like you can't spell. <laughs> and um, so it wasn't until I went to university where I actually had a lot of formal assessments. So um, through I had to do an extra year at sixth form because I was a little bit disruptive. I didn't go to some of my classes and I failed one year. <laughs> so, um I kind of obviously then redid a lot of things at A level and for university, I was like, right, I probably do need to have formal assessments and have a look at what sort of support can be offered. Cause I've just kind of coasted through education because I can say, because I was still achieving like relatively good grades, I got like A's and B's and like until I was at sixth form where it was a lot more kind of self-directed, 
it wasn't too much of a problem as such to like she's disruptive but can get but can still achieve and um so when I went to university they um did like a formal assessment it was through the disabled students allowance and they are really really good um so I had um a, a dyslexia assessment um they kind of looked at everything and put all of the things in place um in terms of for what support I need at university and whilst I was at university I had then so another under, undergrad uni yes sorry yeah for my undergrad um then I had another formal assessment for ADHD and that's kind of the one which then is used um like I say as now I've, I've been seeking extra support but it was from the stuff from the university um from the second sort of diagnostic opinion with what they use so that and again but that was all through university so I found that quite helpful and so initially you were sort of making lifestyle changes and giving yourself more structure and routine I'm guessing but more recently you have decided to explore medication options haven't you yeah and I was offered to be honest I was offered medication while I was completing my undergrad and I think it's something that I've always been really anxious about and I think as well, a lot of people with ADHD, me especially, you kind of um, internalize your difficulties and kind of feel like you're not as good. So it's kind of like, and you're trying to mask things and compensate and show that you're the same as everybody else. And I think for me, taking medication at that point as well was admitting that there is something wrong or admitting that I'm not as good. I know that's not true, but that's kind of how it felt at that time. So because I was able to kind of, sort of manage um I I can say I didn't take medication then and it was more so in terms of completing my doctorate and I think it was I work full-time I do a full-time course um I bought a house with my partner so I've got obviously adult responsibilities um and I think it was just everything together was just too much for me to kind of manage with um I try and obviously use behavioral strategies I try and structure my day and things like that um I try and get a good night's sleep I say try it doesn't always work but I think it got to the point where I was like actually I'm coming home from work and I'm just completely exhausted and I'm just so burnt out like I would go and sit on the sofa and I'd be like in like a taco of quilts um and like I need to be left for an hour and I'm like, so you're I, like I, highly functional but at what cost and the cost was all your own personal deficit yeah and I'm like actually this 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 is not helpful (laughs) so um I say um I initially start the medication thinking actually if it helps me get through my doctorate I don't need to take it then again after but actually I found it really helpful it does kind of help in terms of not feeling chronically overwhelmed or burnt out (laughs) okay that's good because I think there's probably quite a high correlation between um, ADHD and psychologists, I believe. I definitely <laughs> think I've got traits of ADHD for sure. So how has it been then taking meds? I remember seeing you talking about headaches and stuff initially. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I did notice was increased temperature. So I am always generally quite warm when I take my medication. Like I- I'm wearing a T-shirt today. <laughs> um but increased body temperature like I did have headaches um I'd have quite a fuzzy head but one of the things I would do is I'm really bad for forgetting to drink and I'd go throughout the day and I wouldn't have drank much and I think as well that was part of it I 
I feel a lot better because I'll, I'll kind of make myself drink. I'll have like a bottle of water and I'm like, right, I need to, I need to drink as much, much as this as I can. When I'm sat down at my desk, I will drink. Um, so I still do notice like the main thing is like my increased body temperature, but the rest of the stuff, I think I, I don't know if I'm just learning to tolerate it or I've just become used to it. Um, but it hasn't, other than that, I haven't been too bad. I know, some people have um, really struggled to eat or feel sick. Um, I haven't really noticed that. I think maybe I don't eat as much crap, but I think that's because when I'm bored, I'm like, right, what can I do? I'll go and eat some chocolate just because it's, you get that, obviously, them, <laughs> them whatever chemicals released from eating chocolate. And um, you're getting that stimulation, you know, yeah. more stuff in, you know, more. Yeah, all of that. And I know some of the clients I've worked with when they've started taking meds have been like, oh, my God, have other people been like this? all the time and I just didn't know have you had that level of kind of <laughs> ah or not so much yeah I guess it's I my head is really busy so I have lots of thoughts and sometimes I feel like I can't keep up with them so it'd be like one thought and then another and then another and that has slowed down a little bit so I'll be writing something I'll be like writing a sentence and I'm like oh the next bit oh the next bit and I just can't keep up and or I'll be having a conversation with somebody and then something will pop into my head or I'll be distracted by something and I, I'm fully gone. Like I really struggle to filter what my attention goes to. It'll be something in my environment. It'll be like, OK, it's there. It's there. Someone's talking over there. And I think with the medication, it's quieter. Like I don't notice as many um, sort of thoughts. I feel like it's, it, is, it feels quieter. I don't know how to explain it more than that. But um yeah, I think that's the thing I struggle with most is that I'll come onto the laptop for a very specific reason or I'll open a new web page um, because I'll need to, for example, do something on LinkedIn or send a message to someone or do something on my uh, mailing list software. But my homepage is it's just a random feed of news and things. I don't even know what page it is. Um but it's really interesting <laughs> and it's got like new, you know, breaking news headlines and stories from around the country and locally. And sometimes 10 minutes will go by and I'll be like, oh, God, oh, I still haven't done that thing. Um, and yeah, so I think it is about being really bounded and recognising when the thoughts come that want to drag you in different directions and then being a bit like, hold on a minute. No, <laughs> you can do that later. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'll, I'll go into the kitchen and I'll go in for a cup of tea and then I'll see something on the way like, oh, I've left a plate here. I'll pick that plate up. Then I've gone into the kitchen. I'm like, oh, I might have some chocolate coins or I've done something else. And then I'll come back and I'll have forgot my drink. And I'm like, what did I go in for? Oh, my tea. Go back and get the cup of tea. And it's just my attention can go everywhere. <laughs> but I, I do feel like it is a lot easier to kind of focus on what I what I need to focus on rather than being so distracted by everything. And I think just the ability to be able to sit and do something. So I use an app called Forest um, because I really struggle to sit and do my work. My phone is my enemy. I'll be like, oh, I can go on LinkedIn. Oh, I can go on WhatsApp. Oh, this TikTok. I'll just watch two videos like an hour later. I'm like, well, that was helpful um so this app disables everything and I grow like a little tree 
But if I go onto the Alps, it will kill my tree and I'll have a dead, like a wilting tree in my forest. Really don't want a wilting tree in my forest. So it will stop me from kind of going off topic because I can't. Um, but I will notice when I'm picking my phone up and it'll say, um, stop fubbing, like get back to what you're doing. Your phone is distracting you. Um, but I'd set it for 15 minutes and then I'd be still picking my phone up. But I can set it for, I could probably set it for about half an hour to 45 minutes now. And I've had it where my time has gone off and I'm still kind of doing my work and going from being able to concentrate probably 15 minutes to like an hour. So it has, it has made like a positive difference. Um, difference Yeah. And how does that crop up for you when you're in client sessions or when you're doing clinical work with people? Um, I think it's, it's definitely because it's work that I'm like kind of prepping and kind of stuff like that. I'm, I'm okay, but I struggle more in sort of like long meetings. So if we have like um, ward round and it's like three hours and we've got, we're seeing six people and I'll be like, I'm just going to go to the toilet a minute or when there's a gap between when we've seen people or sometimes we'll have like a meeting before ward round and I'm like, it's going to be a long day. And I'd come back and for me on my ward, ward round was at the end of the day. So I'd come back up and I'd be like, it's five o'clock, I've got an hour. And I literally, I wouldn't be doing anything that functional. It'd be, do I need to type something up? Do I need to tidy my desk? Do I need to sort some files? Because I'd literally be fried. Um, And so I found the meeting side a lot harder. Um, But again, that's been a lot easier um, with the medication. I I still kind of get up and walk around and like, I'm just going to go to the toilet because it just breaks it up a little bit more. But I think that's where kind of it affects me most is long meetings. <laughs> oh, I, hate, I hated meetings. Honestly, the way to kill my soul was to invite me to a meeting. Um, and often I used to find that meetings could have just been an email as well. Like this didn't, this didn't need to happen. And obviously when you're, it is slightly different in forensic services and when you're trying to make team decisions as well because you need to have that MDT input but it is really tricky to have that sustained attention and to hold all those different ideas and different opinions in mind and they are long you know and um, that's why when I was in psychiatric hospital they used to get nice biscuits for us (laughs) to to make that attention more likely but I definitely did have a slightly you know enlarged waistline when I was working in services with nice biscuits. I do have to say, uh, the psychiatrist on our ward, she always brings lovely biscuits and there's always nice teas and coffees. Um, and I'm like, yeah, this is a good ward round. <laughs> um, it helps. It, it helps. helps. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and information so freely and warmly with us. Is there anything I haven't asked you, Amy, that you think would be useful for the audience to know or that you wish I had asked you? Um, I guess for me, one of the things which I found helpful is um, being a lot more open about having ADHD and neurodiversity. And I guess for me, it's one of the things that I've always kind of been a lot more kind of resistant about sharing due to kind of, I guess it's the fears of the negative connotations of ADHD. And especially working in forensic settings, I'd be like, like we work with patients who have ADHD. Do they think that I'm going to do something people uh, who employ me think I'm going to do something 
impulsive? Do you think it's going to affect my ability to do my job? And I think this is something I was really kind of concerned about and was kind of a barrier to me kind of being a lot more open. But actually, I found kind of the opposite. So um, um, I've shared that I have ADHD and dyslexia with my team and um, my supervisor is incredibly supportive. And actually, it's been really beneficial because there's that kind of like shared then understanding of um say for example if I go to a session and or I'm doing sort of group work with an and I'm working with somebody else um just kind of that extra have we got everything because I might forget it and I think sometimes um symptoms of ADHD can be perceived negatively and I think if people aren't aware it could be perceived as I'm just not prepared or I, I'm not I don't care about doing work with other people because I've forgot the materials or I've not prepped um and which actually isn't the case like sometimes I've just genuinely forgot or my organization isn't as good um but I found it been really helpful sort of being open and sharing that with my team and they've uh, actually said well actually no it's, it's really beneficial because you have that added insight in terms of um how ADHD affects you is the only way that I can alter sessions and make them a bit more sort of user-friendly for for patients who can't focus for an hour so yeah, I found that it has been positive being a lot more open with my team. Um, I do get that sometimes that there is also the flip side. You may not have such a supportive work environment, but um, as a whole, I've found more people are supportive than not supportive. Good. I'm really pleased to hear that. And I guess this is some of the the considerations for the pathologizing nature of certain kind of conditions really because it doesn't make you any different it's a framework for understanding the things that you struggle with and the things that you that are more effortless for you and actually as we increase people's knowledge and understanding about a variety of presentations including ADHD people would understand that this is an area you know, in forensic psychology that you're highly interested in. And so you're going to have more ability to be able to, you know, to do those tasks and see things through from beginning to end. Whereas if there's something you really had no interest in, then that's going to be really much more of a struggle to to make yourself engage with and make yourself follow through on. Yeah, I think that is one of the things that I struggle with the most if it's something which I don't like or it is boring it is like pulling teeth (laughs) but I guess uh, if it's something that you're interested in um I don't know like I can I can sit and go through stuff I can like plan something for hours um if it if it's something that I'm interested in like you've got my full attention brilliant ditto and if someone's listening to this and thinking oh I wonder if I might you know this rings a bell you know this is resonating with me there are adult neurodiversity services in the UK isn't there is that the best thing to do or do people go to their GP what would be your advice I think one of the difficulties um with the NHS services is they do have incredibly long wait times and I do know that is is a difficulty for people who um obviously I wanted to seek support. So I already had a diagnosis. So when I went through the service and they was just able to look at my previous notes and all the, the other things, um, and I still had to wait around five or six months. Um, and I think for a diagnosis, I think the waiting times are, it is, so I'm Nottinghamshire and I think it's around 18 months for ADHD and over two years for autism. Um, 
I would definitely recommend kind of going to seek the support if if you need to, because I do think it's beneficial. Um, there is always the option to go private, but the difficulty I found is that some NHS services will not accept private diagnoses. Um, so I'm saying mine was through the NHS anyway. So they was obviously they was quite happy to accept my diagnosis. Um, but they said as well, if I had a, if I had gone privately and I had a private diagnosis, they would have had to reassess through the NHS. So I don't know if that's just my service, but I think that's something to be aware about because okay. the assessments are expensive. The medication's expensive. It's not through the NHS. So I definitely would recommend going and seeking that extra support. And if you can persevere, I would go through the NHS just because I'd hate for somebody to spend thousands and then still have to go back through the NHS. Um, one bit of advice I would recommend is if you are within education is to go through either disabled students allowance or um, to go through your university um, to the GP because I found that a lot, lot quicker. That's how I got my diagnoses. Thank you. Um, recently, um, I'm aware of some clients that had gone um, for assessment for ADHD via a psychiatrist, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And once they were diagnosed and had started and tolerated medication, the NHS did then agree to do, um, you know, to, to issue their prescriptions to take over their care. So it might well be a difference depending, you know, on where you live but um yeah it's I, I think if you can afford to go private or someone to help fund that private it's it's definitely worth exploring um yeah because it can be transformational when we're looking especially at aspiring psychologists you know 18 months is a long time to wait isn't it when you're trying to progress your career and, and get on with your life yeah definitely and um from one of the private services that I looked at, they they had that sort of option in terms of when you was on a stable sort of dose and your medication was stable, they would transfer you back to your GP. Um, so I think it is solely dependent on kind of your location, what your uh, GP or NHS service locally will provide. Because if I, I found it really hard waiting six months. And so I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to wait the two years. And then you've got it's it is such a long time so yeah <laughs> yeah I do I do sympathize with people going through that process absolutely thank you so much for your time today Amy I am so looking forward to seeing when you become Dr Amy Jane <laughs> on LinkedIn I'm sure you are as well thank you Wow, wasn't that lovely? Um, Amy wanted me to let you know um, that she had a poorly mouse with her because she's a she's a rodent mama, um, and so she was having to keep a an eye and half a brain on this mouse um, who keeps um, keeps hurting themselves um, accidentally. Um, so yes, um, she really enjoyed the chat with us, but she was slightly mouse aware at times as well. Um, so if you've got any ideas or thoughts or insights into this episode or it's evoked anything for you then come and chat with us in the aspiring psychologist community group and let us know how it yeah, how it felt for you how it landed for you 
And if you enjoyed the episode, please do take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, which is a possibility, it's Dr. Marianne Trent, then please, whilst you're there, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and why not drop a comment in there to let me know how you found it. I will look forward to catching up with you for our next episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast, which is available at 6am every Monday morning. Thank you so much for being part of my world and I'll catch up with you very soon. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. Hello, my name is Veronica Kasova. I live in Edinburgh and I just graduated with a Master's in Psychology of Mental Health. Marion recommended me the Clinical Psychologist Collective when I was networking on LinkedIn and I must say I love it. Um, it is one of a kind. It's like a window into the lives of people on the path of becoming a psychologist. The stories are unique, honest and filled with a kind of intangible wisdom only personal storytelling can uncover. A common thread in the stories I valued most was to be compassionate not only with others, but with myself too. Also, not fixating on becoming a psychologist, but enjoying life, growth, and the final results will come as a byproduct. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to collate all the stories. The book is a true gem, and I think every aspiring psychologist should have a copy on their shelf. Thank you.